I mentioned in my pastoral notes this morning, it's one of the great privileges that I have to be able to teach at New College Franklin. I get the privilege of teaching uh, theology to some of the students. I hope they think that's a privilege. They, they may not think that's a privilege. I think it's a privilege uh, for me to be able to do so and uh, several other electives. And um, I think the, the theme that we're looking at this morning about from generation to generation is thinking seriously about what does it mean to really transmit, to pass down the faith um, in a way that is intentional, in a way that's seeking to genuinely explore the riches of the gospel and the relationship of the world and our experience to the message of Scripture. And I believe that Psalm 78 actually gives us instruction and guidance in that in the way that New College is just represented uh, for us at an academic level, but the way that it works at every sense of level for us as followers of Christ, always seeking to make Christ known uh, before those and bef- be- in our sphere of influence and before the watching world. And so today in Psalm 78, I would ask you to simply turn your attention to the way in which the Lord speaks the call of generational faith, how he speaks it, the level at which he communicates it, the urgency that's in the, the tone of the scripture here as we approach it so that our hearts will really genuinely be fashioned unto eternal things. It's difficult for us to flip that switch even as we approach the scripture, to genuinely lean in and listen to the word of God. The opening verse says, give ear, uh, literally incline yourself over to this word. Uh, meaning to meditate, to ponder, to listen submissively, to do so by meaning to be shaped or formed by. That changes things deliberately when you approach a text of Scripture already in a disposition of spirit that it would have reigning power over you. We sometimes like to say here at Cornerstone, we don't just want to read the Scripture. We want the Scripture to read us. We want the Bible to do its work on our own heart. And so today as we submit ourselves to Psalm 78, prayerfully approach this word with me as we seek to pursue the face of God. Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 8. This is God's word. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open up my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we simply ask you now as we come before this word from the psalmist, 
that you would speak to us personally and corporately as the body of Christ. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and for hearts to believe and for wills to obey all that you have spoken. We ask that you would place within us the same spirit of urgency that Asaph has in communicating these truths to us. And we pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness in Christ to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to know that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, expand your kingdom. And in grace, use us in that work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was one passage of scripture that I really stuck out, stuck out to me when I was traveling recently in Greece and in Rome, as many of you know, with the missions team from this church with Servant Group International seeking to work with refugees and the refugee crisis that is ensuing in Eastern Europe and other places across the globe. We partnered with several church plants that were there. We saw their heart for mission. Uh, we saw the eagerness of the work that the Lord had, had given them to do. We heard the testimonies of conversions from those who had not uh, before heard of the riches of Jesus Christ. It was incredibly, incredibly encouraging. And, and for us, a real spiritual shot in the arm, the Lord opening up our eyes to behold the riches of his grace in a new and fresh way, those of us who are on the team. But there was alongside this encouraging new work of the Lord on many levels, also a sobering reality the sobering reality was that we got to do some sightseeing while we were in Greece and Rome, and I got to see some of the most amazing churches you can, you can imagine. Some of you know St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, this, this uh, a remarkable monument to the artistry and architecture of uh, the late medieval period. Some of you uh, know its, its huge capacities. It is absolutely cavernous when you are in it. Um, there can be a worship service happening on one corner of the building that you wouldn't even know is happening because of the nature of its size and then the beauty and the wealth that's from within is absolutely amazing. But one of the things that's remarkable about seeing those old buildings and going from uh, one to the other was acknowledging that these are more tourist attraction than worshiping houses. That these have become monuments to a faith that is gone, not to a faith that is presently alive and thriving. Uh, the question that I couldn't help but escape is, what does it mean to pass on the legacy of faith? Not merely the tradition, not merely the art and the architecture, the culture that surrounds it, but what does it mean to pass on the heart of faith, the living and pulsating center of the truth of the gospel, so that the experience would be such as what the Apostle Paul writes of Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that I know of your sincere faith, the faith that once dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. I have confidence now dwells within you as well. It's one of the most beautiful passages. The sincere faith that dwelt. Love that choice of language from the Apostle Paul. It dwelt within him. It was a living principle of life. It wasn't merely an assent to doctrinal truth. It wasn't merely the receiving of a series of religious practices. It was a living reality 
an identity that he moved and had his being within. As we approach Psalm 78, we're asking, what's the pattern of the transmission of general faith, of generational faith? What does it mean to communicate in such a way that the testimony might be in this congregation that in generations of worshiping children upon children from one generation to the next could say, I remember my grandmother and my mother's faith. I remember my grandfather's faith and my great-grandfather's faith. And I can remember the earnestness and the urgency by which they made the truth of the gospel known to me. Now, we will say from the very beginning, as needs to be said week in and week out, that is not something that you or I can do. We can't make the faith happen in anybody's heart. We're all painfully aware of that, those who have tried really hard to make that happen and have not seen it happen on many occasions. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, which means that the very foundation of what we're going to talk about today is a prayerful pleading to the Lord to do this work that only He can do. But let us also acknowledge that God has promised to do this work in and through instruments, you being instruments in the Redeemer's hands for that very purpose. And if you were to look back over the course of your life, could you not also say that you have, those of you who are believers in Jesus today, fathers and mothers in the faith? People who spoke to you, whether they were actual family or Sunday school teachers or counselors or coaches or however it is the Lord might have used his people in a variety of ways in your life. I certainly can't look back upon my life without seeing the impression of certainly my nuclear family, but so many godly men who the Lord brought into my life, who spoke into my life, oftentimes at very important moments. And I realized that those mentors, their sincere faith dwelling with the Lord has now given shape to my own. And I can hardly in many cases think or imagine what life would be like had I not run into them and had the Lord not brought them into my life. What is the pattern of the generational passing down? Of the faith. Well, as we look at just a few points from Psalm 78, I want you to think with me in four ways from this text. Four ways that I'll summarize in four words. I want you to think of the speaking that must be done. I want you to think in the hearing that must be done. I want you to think in the hope that we must have. And I want you to think of the rhythm or the repetition that we must be willing to walk in. The speaking that we must do, the listening or the hearing that we must receive, the hope that we must have, and the repetition that we must never tire of performing. And I believe that this model, this rhythm, gives us a place at which we can begin to talk about the faith with those who are around us. I want to start with the speaking because it's the primary focus of this text. You'll see throughout this text the language of tell, and told, and open my mouth, and utter, and teach, and instruction, all kinds of language with regards to the ministry of the word. There is a word-based transmission that is essential to the nature of the faith being passed down from one generation to the other. But it's not just uh, the mere use of words. There's a particular type 
of word that's actually being described here in Psalm 78. I would go in further to say exemplified by the fullness of this psalm. I want you to look with me at verse 4. It says, we will not hide the words that our fathers told us, but we will tell to the coming generation. What are we going to tell? What does it mean to share the faith to the coming generation? Look at how it's described. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his wonders and his might. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his wonders and his might. This is the way Asaph describes the sharing of the faith. It's the sharing of what God has done. It's the sharing of his wonder. It's the sharing of his might. It's the glimpsing and the catching of his attributes and of his character. It's getting a sense for who this God is and what it is that he has accomplished. It's painting him high and lifting up. It's showing him in his glory so that the mind and the imagination of the hearts of those who hear of him will be captured and overwhelmed at his beauty. Psalm 78 is a long psalm. It's 72 verses long. It's actually the second longest of the psalms in all of the Psalter, exceeded only by Psalm 119. Fascinatingly, of those 72 verses, 64 of those verses are story. Or we might call it history, his story. Uh, Beginning in verse 9 and extending all the way to the end of Psalm 78, the section that we didn't read this morning, begins in the telling of the story of Exodus, spanning all the way to the inauguration and the rule of King David. And throughout, the psalmist selects strategic portions from the history of the Old Testament in order to teach of the glorious deeds and the wonders of the Lord. The goal in doing this is to remind the people of God or to share to the people of God in glorious form how it is that God has been the redeemer of his people. Think of the history that has been spanned from Exodus all the way to 2 Samuel, slicing out pieces of redemptive history and describing them in a way that shows us who God is and what it is that he has done. In other words, what the psalmist here is doing is he's telling a story. An abbreviated, even a cliff note, even a Reader's Digest condensed version of the Old Testament history from Exodus to 2 Samuel. Because he's got a point to make. He wants us to see the glorious wonders and the deeds of the Lord. Now nothing awakens our hearts quite like stories. Dr. Richard Pratt, when he was writing his classic work on the Old Testament, how to read its narrative, how to understand it, didn't settle on a very academic title when he wrote that wonderful tome. He instead settled on a very simple but profound title. When he thought of God's revelation, he titled his book simply this, He Gave Us Stories. He Gave Us Stories. Uh, Pratt acknowledged this by simply making two very simple observations. The observations are when you look within the text of Scripture, anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of all of its instruction comes in the form of narrative. It comes in the form of story. God is very interested in communicating redemptive history to you in a form of a story, in a way that makes a deep impression. You, You know stories, 
They have a way of speaking to us in a deeper and more profound ways than any other kind of communication. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, don't be materialistic or being wedded to the world. It's another, another thing to say, remember Lot's wife? It's one thing to say, be courageous and bold and strong. It's another thing to recount the story of Esther. It's one thing to say, God will provide. It's another thing to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You can, even in the communication of those simple statements like that, you can feel the difference between the two. Uh, That the stories of instruction, the stories of warning, the stories of promise, uh, embedded within them are certainly doctrines and moral practices and behavior, but the Bible is not primarily a systematic theology. Uh, Nor is it a a moral handbook for living or a self-help guide, though you'll find all of those realities within it. What the Bible is, is a story. A story of God's work. His redemptive history. And it's not just the stuff that's in the content of the Bible. The whole Bible is structured as a narrative. As as Pratt notes, there is a plot line in the Bible. There are lead characters in the Bible. There are good guys and there are bad guys. And there's conflict. There's dramatic tension. There's plot twists. And ultimately, at the end of the scripture, there's resolution. The things that began and the things that fell apart are ultimately put back together. There is a kind of happily ever after. When we begin to realize that all of the instruction of the Bible can't be distilled down to a few spiritual practices or a handful of collected doctrines, but must be something that is immersed in the narrative of the whole of Scripture, we begin to get a clue of how the transmission of faith really works. The glorious deeds of the Lord and the wonders that He has accomplished must not simply be spoken of as dissected parts but must be understood in its relationship to the whole. I want to give you simply an example from a passage of Scripture that you know very well, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, Moses is writing to the people of Israel, seeking to instruct them in the raising up of their children, and in many ways the passing on of generational faith. And he's very practical in his instruction here because essentially he's dealing with a son who probably doesn't really want to go to church. I don't know if there are any sons in here that are like that. I have a son or two at the Sheridan house that can sometimes be like that. Don't necessarily want to come to church. Why do we got to go to, go to church? Well, what do we got to sit in that pew? You're going to talk a really long time. It's going, to be, it's going to be really difficult. Why do we have to go to church? Well, Moses actually speaks to us about this. He says, when your son asks you in times to come, what is the meaning of all of this? All of these testimonies, all of these statutes, all these rules. Like, what's the meaning of all this stuff? Then you shall say to your son this. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord had brought us out by a righteous and mighty right hand. The Lord showed us signs and he showed us wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our very eyes. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to his fathers. And the Lord has commanded us to do all of these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive just as we are today. I want you to see what Moses 
didn't do. <laughs> Dad, why do we have to go to church? Son, don't ask me that. We always go to church. That's just what you're supposed to do. Now, why do we have to go to church? Because the Bible tells us so. Now, get in the car. That's often the kind of communication that we give. Which, which often is, is a child groping, as, as we would often do, for explanation for what may seem like difficult to understand, arcane, and, and if not in the right perspective, meaningless activity. They're looking for interpretation and understanding and explanation. They want to know, does all of this make sense? And what Moses says is, tell them the story. Tell them the story. The behaviors don't make sense apart from the story. The commands don't make sense apart from the, the story. The things that we do are embedded within a narrative that God is telling with his own righteous right hand. So we tell the story, we pass down the faith, we get inside of it. We actually, in a very real sense, write each other into the story, even as we talk and discuss. Why do I say it that way? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. You see, when Asaph here is writing this, he's concerned about the faithless generation that has come before, and he doesn't want the faith to be lost on the generation that's coming up. And so there's an urgency about the way that he communicates. And he says, I want you to know that I'm not just telling you a story to tell you a story. I've got a reason behind it. I've got a purpose. Listen to his purpose. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our Father has told us. Do You see, we're called to tell the story of redemption, but I want you to hear what he's saying. We're called to tell the story of redemption with wisdom. Why do I say with wisdom? Because here, Asaph uses two terms that are prevalent in wisdom literature. He uses the term parable, and he uses the word dark saying. Now, you might hear dark saying and think something ominous. Well, Psalm 78 actually does have ominous warnings within it, but the terminology of dark saying means something mysterious. It almost means the riddle. I want you to pay attention to the redemption story because within it is a parable or a riddle. Well, what is a parable? Well, it's a story that's told in one realm of life that's intended to shed light on another realm of life. Think of Nathan's rebuke of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. It's a story that teaches a lesson in the moment of David's sin. David has sinned with Bathsheba. He's not confessed or repented of his sin. He's tried to cover it with murder. At this point, he's moving on, hoping everyone has forgotten. And Nathan, the prophet, inspired and enlightened by God, comes to David and he confronts him face to face and he says, I know what you've done. No, that's not what he does. He tells him a story. He says, within your kingdom, there's this really poor man who only has one sheep. And there's this rich man who has many sheep and lots of resources. And the rich man is having friends over to his home, and you won't believe what he did. He actually went to the poor man, and he stole his sheep. And he sacrificed it, and he's using its food in order to provide for those who are coming to visit him, while the man who only had one sheep, who was very poor, had the little bit that was taken from him. And we're told that David incensed. 
He's angered. And this would take place within his own kingdom. Says the man who has taken that sheep should be killed. And Nathan in that moment turns the parable on David. And says that you are that man. Now I would suggest to you that's a more powerful way of doing things. And it's probably a way of sneaking up as it will in a riddle, in a parable, in a lesson that's meant to communicate the story of redemption with power. It's meant to show a universal principle applied and invading and breaking into the heart and the life of that individual. But even deeper than this is Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Stephen goes back and he collects Old Testament history from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and going forward to Moses and he's speaking to the Pharisees who would have known this history like by the you know like the back of their hand and and they're beginning to wonder why are you telling us all the stuff that we know and going back to the prophets and everything that has happened because then he brings them to Jesus and he says, the way that you have rejected the prophets of old that are, that are enumerated across the Old Testament scriptures, you have rejected now the very Son of God. You are just like the old and rebellious generation that has preceded you. He's taking, as it were, the richness of the story, the unfolding of its connection, and he's bringing it to bear in Christ and in a lesson that teaches to the very heart of those who need to receive it. Do you see, when you come and tell the story of redemption with wisdom, with a view to Christ's fulfillment, you begin to see unpacking and lightning in the eyes of those who need to hear that gospel. You begin to see the pennies drop. You begin to see the light bulbs go off. You begin to realize that this book is not merely a bunch of old tales full of history, but it's a living book that cuts to bone and marrow. It's a book that goes all the way to the center and brings transformation. It's a living word. So we tell the story, but we tell it with wisdom. But then notice also how he tells us what should be the disposition of our heart as we tell it. It should be full of worship. It should, have, should be full of worship. We see this indicated in verse 2 when he says, open my mouth, and he uses the word utter or to pour out. This is the language of worship. We're reading a psalm. This would have been a word that would have been sung by the people of Israel in the temple. This would have been a rehearsal for what they would have done in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. He says, I pour forth, I utter forth, I open my mouth. It's the language of praise. It's the language of prayer. You know, you can tell a story and you can tell it wisely, but you can tell it in a way that's not connected to the heart. In a way that's really not captured the one who's speaking. Haven't you heard someone speak about the truth of the gospel and has made you wonder whether they even believe what they're saying? They seem disconnected by it, unmoved, untouched, untransformed by the realities of which they speak. He says the heart that this must come from is a heart of worship. The mind that this must pour forth from is one full of wisdom in connection with Christ and the lessons of the heart. And the knowledge that one must have is an unfolding of the story of the gospel in redemption. When you begin to love the things that you love in front of the people that you want to love them, it often begets grace. 
it often begets grace. When that kind of love and that kind of faith begins to pour out from our lips. Now, why, does all, why would we do all of this? Well, he tells us. He says in verse 7, we go to all of this effort. We learn the narrative of Scripture. We think about it wisely. We communicate it as it connects to Christ. We do so from a heart of worship. We do so so that they would set their hope in God, verse 7. That they would not forget the works of the Lord, but they would keep his commandments. Do, do you desire for those whom you love who don't know Christ presently, do you desire for their hope to be set in God? Do you know if it's set in anything other than God, it will ultimately destroy them? And there's this sense of, there's a sense of eternity hanging in the balance with regards to the communication of this redemptive story. The hope is not set in a circumstance. The hope is not set in a peaceful frame. The hope is set in God. It's set in the very being and the person of God. This is why one of the strongest apologies, that is, defenses of the gospel, is when you see a believer wrecked by the things of this world, but stayed on Christ. When you see, as is described here, as a hope set in God, the, one of the main images of hope in the scripture is an anchor. When you see that anchor set, as it were, in God, and you being on the boat in the midst of a sea that blows and waves that crash, and you don't move because you're stayed in heaven with your feet on the earth. When that sort of soulish reality is a part of the disposition of the heart that shares the redemptive story as the reason for which the confidence comes, there is something overwhelmingly attractive and beautiful about it. That you want to know that truth so deeply that the same kind of God that they have come to know would be your God and the same realities of comfort would be your comforts and the same securities would be your securities and the same energy for perseverance would be their energy for perseverance. You begin to have faith begetting faith, grace begetting grace. The Holy Spirit is pleased very often to use that kind of focus. When we have our hope set in God, we can begin to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Notice, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. It's not a feeling. Religion's not a feeling. But I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Do you believe this? All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. All other ground is sinking sand. He says, this hope, when it's settled there, is where the real life of faith begins to burgeon. It's where the real attractiveness and compellingness of the faith begins to emerge. Could it be that in our sharing of the faith, we've shared it in such a way that it's just sort of atomized into bits of fragments about a few things to believe and a few morals to obey, but we really don't have any sense of its meaning? And could it be it comes from a, from a voice that just doesn't have the wisdom to understand how that story needs to be told with the heart in relationship to Christ? And could it be it doesn't come from a heart of worship that has its hope set in God and so it doesn't have a compelling vision? You see, these are the kinds of disciplines, the kinds of wisdom, the cultivation that must be born 
within the life of faith. And what that means is we've got a long way to go. And you're taking the message home this morning, you'll find on the back of your bulletin that I ask you a question. What help do you need to understand the story of redemption? What help do you need? To begin to ask those questions within your home fellowship group. Begin emailing to Tony or I or others. How is it we can learn more about the story of redemption? How is it that we can learn more about wisdom and its relationship to Christ? What would it be like as I'm stuck in speaking to this person or that person about the gospel? And I almost want to apologize for the faith because the way I present it just feels so tawdry. It feels so anemic. It doesn't have the lifeblood of what's really there. Those are the kinds of serious questions that we need to ask. If we're going to transmit a living faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and dwelt also in your mother Eunice and now dwells livingly within you. If it's a living faith and not a mere tradition or a form of religion, if it's a living faith that we want, we have to actually live in this story. And we are living in this story. You see, we have a tendency, I think, to look at this text of Scripture and see it as something old or future, but the reality is it's something invading and breaking in to the present. Because the final chapters of Revelation haven't taken place yet. Christ hasn't come back. He hasn't made his bride his own. We are not perfect yet in glory. He has not consummated the end of his kingdom. Do you know what that means? It means you're living somewhere within the history of the Bible rather than being outside of it. The history that it's actually speaking of, you're within. The teaching and the principles that it gives to you are pulsating right now within your veins, spiritually speaking. And are within the air that we breathe culturally. The Christian has to see these things are real and not just, just, just state them as something that's true, but as something that's deep and meaningful and has transformation. He says, we've got to continue to do this repetitively. Repetitively. You know what this means? It doesn't simply mean that you record it and press play and do it over and over and over again. It means in a very real sense that every day we have to get up and relive and rewrite and reemerge from this glorious story. Living within its realities as the lens and the grid through which life happens. We have to come back to it again and again and again and we have to reimagine it and rethink it and re see it through another angle, see it through another lens. George Swinock puts it this way. He says, A frequent mention of things is the best art of memory. What the mouth preaches wisely often, the mind will ponder. For the more a disciple is acquainted with the goodness, wisdom, and power, and faithfulness of God, the more they will fear and love and trust Him. This will mean we will have to be students of this word. We are called a people of the book. And that people of the book must be students of that book. And to be students of that book is to learn how to compellingly share the stories from this book. To, to, see, to see what clearly Edward Mote saw in the solid rock in the stanza where he writes, When darkness veils his lovely face, when you can't see the Lord Jesus, but his, his face is veiled to you because of the darkness, I rest on his unchanging grace. 
I can't see him or experience or feel him in the way that I want to, the way I desire to, but I reach beyond the moment experientially and I trust something that's deeper, his unchanging grace. So he says, in every high and stormy gale, he says, my anchor, there it is, holds within the veil. Within the veil. Darkness is veiled its lovely face. But my anchor holds within that veil, within not being able to see fully. But when you begin to connect that to Hebrews 6, you see something even richer. You see, here's one of the parables, one of the dark sayings, one of the mysteries, one of the riddles that the scripture is constantly speaking to you. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have it. It's been given to us. Here's what it is. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the veil. The hope that enters into the inner place behind the veil. Oh wait, this is not just a veil like a bride would wear on her wedding day to cover her face. This is the veil of the Holy of Holies. This is that sheet that would separate us from being in the presence of God and from not being in the presence of God, the place where only the high priest could go in. My anchor is sure and steadfast because I have a hope that's entered into the veil. I can't enter into that veil. I can't go into the Holy of Holies. As you know from Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, if anyone other than the high priest would go in, they would be killed on the spot. No one can dwell within the presence of a holy God except he who is a holy God himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's this anchor, this sure hope who enters in behind the curtain. How do we know that? Because when he was crucified, what happened? We're told that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That heaven itself was opened up. That the presence of God was made available to his people by faith. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Leviticus 16. He is the high priest. He is the one who enters on our behalf. He is the one who is our interceder, our mediator. The only one between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than this, he is actually the blood that the priest himself would sprinkle in Leviticus 16 on the mercy seat where the cherubim and the seraphim were dwelling, where the very presence of God existed. This high priest is simultaneously our sacrifice, the fullness of all of the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament, and all of the things that reminded us that we couldn't come close. Jesus has now wiped them away so that we have perfect communion with God. That's a compelling story. That's a powerful story. That's a story that begins to make sense of every bit of loneliness that still wrecks your sin-sick heart. It's the kind of thing that makes sense of the division that's happening within your family. It's the kind of thing that makes you doubt and question the faith and then come back to it and realize, wait, this is sure. I can't count on anything else, but I can count on this. Do you see, if we don't know the story... We won't have the sure anchor in experience in the walk of faith and we won't be prepared to share it to the next generation. And friends, isn't it obvious the next generation needs to hear this story? They need to hear this story. And they need us by God's grace through the power of his word 
to be those willing and courageous to speak this story and to invite them into its wonder and its glory. Just as you, I pray this morning, in the midst of our worship, has tasted something of the glory of who Christ is, Psalm 78 welcomes you into that history. And he welcomes you into that reality. And it asks you to think about the generations yet unborn. Don't be like your foolish forefathers who rejected the faith and ended in disaster. Let it be a morality warning tale to you. Set your hope in God in the horizon of faith. And as you do, look to the third and fourth generation, to the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren of whom most of us will never know. But we'll know Christ in and through them. And we'll one day dwell by God's grace with the generations that we will have never met. For eternity is real. And it hangs on the redemptive story. And belief in Christ alone for our salvation. So friends, let this capture you. And let it renovate you. And then let's go share it with a world that is opting for lesser stories. That are less compelling. And unfulfilling. And will lead to disaster. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask you now to so root the realities of these truths and of this story into our lives that we would not hesitate to speak of it, to be students of it, to be deep listeners and hearers of it. Forgive us for the ways in which we neglect your word and we opt for other stories and other instructions and we go for quick fixes. Rather than just sitting in your presence with your word prayerfully and urging, urging and pleading that you would open up our eyes to behold your wonders. Lord, I pray that you would provoke in our spirit such longing to see the future generations know you that we would do whatever it takes to be equipped to share it. And we wouldn't stop short of it. Father, we're, we're, in, we're in great need of this work right now within our culture, within our lives. And you know the urgency that's there. And so we would simply ask you to be mindful of the need and provoke in us a spirit that will not rest until this reality is more and more realized, the passing of faith from generation to generation. Lord, give us a hunger and a heart. Don't let us be a people who simply are worried about ourselves and our own time. That are just trying to make it to the end rather than thinking about eternal consequences. Father, give us the joy of knowing that when the Christian breathes his last on this earth, he passes immediately into the arms of Jesus and awaits the day of glory. But when those who don't know you die, pass immediately, we're told in the scriptures, into torment. And Father, forgive us for the fact that that just doesn't break our hearts often enough. And so we remain silent, unprepared, skittish, even ashamed. Father, your word is truth. Sanctify us in the truth. And then open our mouths 
to declare your praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.